0: All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hey, everybody. We have a great podcast coming up with you with my buddy Eric Crittenden, and I wanted to do a quick intro and One of the reasons is a lot of investing topics can be a bit jargony, so I wanted to just quickly overview define two topics we 're going to be talking a lot about today. The first is trend falling talked about this. Ad nauseum on my blog and books and white papers, but in general, remember that trend following is simply an investment approach that's been around for a hundred years. The goal of trend following, at its core, is simply to invest in a market that's going up and either be out, or sell a market that's going down, or be short. There's a lot of indicators that can help you measure that those exact trends. It could be something as simple as a long-term moving average, something like a channel breakout, or something as simple as Is this security hit the highest high of the past two years, or you sell it when it's hit the lowest low? Infinite ways to kind of examine this, but the goal, and this applies to any market, Uh, you could be do trend following on stocks, on foreign bonds, on Bitcoin, whatever. And then we also talk about a asset strategy where trend following is applied to as many asset classes as possible. And historically, that's been known as managed futures. And this strategy has been around in its current form with commodity trading advisors, CTAs, commodity pool operators, CPOs, and now as mutual funds and and hedge funds as well. And the goal of managed futures is to trade as many markets as possible. So Eric talks about trading over 100 markets around the world and even 50 distinct markets, all with a trend-following approach. So you may be long wheat, for example, and short the Japanese yen, and long European stocks. So all of these markets and in this sort of ultra-diversification and different approach, meaning you're both long and short, is one of the reasons Managed Futures is such a wonderful strategy historically to combine with a traditional portfolio. So just wanted to give that real quick overview and enjoy the show. Good morning, friends, and welcome to the show. Today, we have an extra special guest, a long-time friend, Eric Crittenden. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Mevin. So Eric and I go back about a decade. I knew... Eric and his partner, Cole, when they were just a two-man shop. They're now, I think, approaching 60 employees, longboard asset management, longboard funds, located in Arizona. Eric, if I remember you correctly, what time did you get up this morning?
1: Uh, About 5.45 a.m.
0: Oh, man, you're sleeping in these days. You're slacking. You got a bunch of employees. Eric used to get up around 4, and we used to chat. And I'd visit him in Arizona, and I have a very fond memory when he picked me up once it's probably 110 degrees outside not joking he picks me up windows down so no ac going on and he's got a, he just picked up a hot coffee and i was like my god man you were you were uh, open to punishment i and i was just wilting in the heat um like many of our guests eric has somewhat of a winding road to get to wall street what, what eric why don't you give us a super quick background to how you guys got Longboard started and, and, and your background, and then we'll get into all the good trend following stuff.
1: Okay. Well, my background is a little bit unusual. I started out as a medical student in the early 1990s. didn't know anything about capital markets, had no interest in stocks, bonds, derivatives, futures, none of that stuff. I had a thing for the natural sciences. My first love was meteorology, and uh, I also I grew up surfing in Southern California, I really had a fascination with dynamic systems, systems that had uh, non-linear elements um, and basically phase state changes, so surfing, meteorology, storms, weather, things like that. In my first uh, attempt at college, I uh, was pre-med for several years, so I took all the uh, science classes and math and whatnot, not from the view of a, of a business student. And it wasn't until later that I developed a fondness for economics, econometrics, investments. Uh, So I had to retake a lot of uh, classes from the perspective of a business student. And I think that that gave me a unique perspective on the world, seeing things from different perspectives, having different priorities when you're looking at data, and a different level of respect for data. So after spending nine years in college, I think I had five different majors, I eventually graduated with a degree in finance, but had a heavy emphasis on computational finance, uh, derivatives, modern portfolio theory, options, pricing, and spent a lot of time studying uh, computer science as well. So my first job out of college, I was a teacher, uh, loved that job, but it didn't pay very well, and ultimately ended up working for a big family office in Kansas for a number of years and learned quite a bit about the psychology of the, uh, the psychology of investing, how people mentally uh, make decisions differently depending upon whether they're uh, profitable or unprofitable or they're feeling pressure.
0: And, and let me let me interrupt real quick. Um, two questions: One, uh, where in Kansas was this? And two, wasn't this where you started looking at uh, managed future strategies and, and trend following strategies in general as well?
1: It was in Wichita, Kansas this was the mid and late 1990s. And yes, I had a, a fondness for contrarian thinking uh, and skepticism and a database and you know a, a computer science data aggregation background. So I spent a lot of time trying to figure out if there was value hidden in plain sight. And that led me to a lot of data analysis. When you're looking at global financial data, you can basically distill it down to a handful of sustainable risk premiums and there was one in in particular that was not very crowded and not very well understood and we call that the risk transfer premium and that is what trend following commodity trading advisors source most of them don't even realize that that's what they're sourcing but that caught my attention when i was younger because you know supply and demand you want to go after risk premiums that aren't crowded so that your profit margins aren't threatened
0: over time. So, Just to clarify real quick, when you say risk transfer, you're meaning something like the hedging market. So if you're a cereal company, you may need to be buying wheat futures, or if you're an airline company and want to hedge your oil price, is that what you're talking about, or are you talking about something else?
1: No, that is what I'm talking about. Whether you're a corporate farmer uh, and you're trying to hedge you know, your production costs or your output prices, there's hedgers on both sides, of all the different derivatives markets, even some of the counterintuitive markets like short-term interest rates, equity indexes, and whatnot.
0: Really quick, interesting aside: I wrote an article called um, "How to Hedge Your Business," and we were thinking about the traditional asset management businesses that are equity long-only, and you guys aren't, but and neither are we. But and I always said, you know, if, assuming these guys treated their book of business like a commodity, it always was curious to me why they wouldn't hedge some or all of that through straight up options, derivatives based hedging, or a trend following approach, because all of their business is related to management fees based on long only equities, both the assets will come out and the revenues will decline when their assets under management go down. Anyway, totally different aside. It's a fun article I'll put up in the show notes, but all right, totally, totally different tangent. Let's go back. So, all right. So, so you were looking at a lot of these strategies, managed futures for this family office, were they receptive to it? And then that also led you to, I think then moving to Arizona to start your own company, right?
1: Correct. You know, in theory, people are receptive to the idea of bringing in uncorrelated risk premiums, uncorrelated to what they're currently over to. In practice, it's very interesting, the psychological trauma, for lack of a better term, that people experience when they diversify properly is one of the most fascinating observations I've ever made during my life. And I've been doing this for 20 years now. And nothing has changed. People want diversification. They want a, a higher quality of their portfolio. They want higher returns with lower risk. But in practice, very few people are actually willing to do the things necessary in order to achieve that. And the family office that I worked for in Kansas was no different.
0: And if you had to give one reason, is it because people don't want to look too different? What, what is the overriding reason that people... Because the example we always give, and, and I totally agree with you, and trend following, in my mind, manage futures, we always call it our desert island strategy, is the one big diversifier strategy that if you, if you went to a CFA meeting and said, all right, we're going to blind all these asset classes or strategies and on paper, and you're going to have to select which is the best diversifier, return enhancer and everything, you would end up with a... Almost everyone in the room selecting managed futures, and not only that, selecting it for a very large part of their allocation. What do you think is the main reason that, that people, is it because they don't want to look too different? They're, they're unfamiliar with the strategy? Well, what do you think it is?
1: That is a very interesting question. And in fact, uh, what you just described is very similar to uh, uh, an experiment that I've done many times over the years, where I've done exactly that. I have uh, put in front of potential clients or existing clients, a bunch of different return streams without identifying what those return streams are. You know, it would be real estate, equities, bonds, managed futures, and uh, maybe a hedge fund index. I tell them, you know, build a portfolio. Start with your foundation asset class and then start building a portfolio from there. So what they're looking at are the compounded annual returns, uh, the annualized volatility, the maximum drawdown, and then the cross correlations. From all the asset classes, and about a hundred percent of the time, people will choose managed futures as their core foundational asset class, and after that, they'll choose uh, typically the hedge fund index, and then real estate, and then bonds, and then stocks.
0: We got to we got to pause on that too because Eric and I have been collaborating on research for almost a decade now. One example, I mean, the hedge fund index. I mean that that already is. The, the one that's there's there's a couple of major versions of those, but almost the one that's, you know, usually widely cited has a lot of is not investable, right? The, the investable version of that, the returns are about four percentage points less than the non-investable version. So on paper right there, yes, they may select it, but it's but it's in reality a much tougher asset class to, to allocate to.
1: It's a good point. Uh, So in this context, I was using investable, realistic hedge fund indexes.
0: They still took it. All right.
1: Yeah, they still took it. But you're right. Absolutely. There's so much survivorship bias baked into most of the hedge fund indexes that they give a very unrealistic, uh, they paint a very unrealistic picture. But in, in this particular experiment, I'm using all things that are investable.
0: Okay. So quick question for you. So you, you, you guys, Longboard manages almost a billion dollars across their two main funds. I'm rounding up, but six, $700 million. You guys, I assume, talk to a lot of institutions. I've always been curious, what institution, you don't have to say their name, but have you talked to institutions or even a family office? What is the highest percent you've ever seen in a managed future strategy as a percentage of the overall allocation?
1: Well, we actually try to avoid institutions. You know our focus is retail financial advisors. You know our whole goal is to bring institutional quality portfolios over into the retail space. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've not seen a lot of people do that successfully over the years, but uh, that is our goal. That doesn't mean we haven't talked to institutions. Uh, we have especially back in the Black Star days prior to longboard. and I would say that, well, the maximum allocation I've ever seen has probably been about 30%. That's very rare. Typically, you're going to see somewhere between 2 and 5% allocated to managed futures or global macro.
0: Well, the funny thing about that is, and you and I both know, for an allocation to really make a difference, and, and, and David Swinson at Yale talks a lot about this, I mean, you really need a, a 5% allocation, if not more, for it not to make a rounding error kind of adjustment. We, you know, so we actually just wrote a paper called the Trinity Portfolio that talks about a lot of the themes you're talking about with managed futures or a trend-following approach. And in this paper, we show that... And it's kind of like what you were talking about with the, the example you would show advisors, where we said... Look, despite the fact that we were comparing a buy and hold po- global portfolio to a, a global trend following portfolio, then the global trend and momentum portfolio had better risk, had better returns, better risk adjusted returns, etc. But we said maybe an optimum portfolio for most people is actually just a fifty fifty mix of the two. You don't look too different, but you have a large allocation to trend. But for many people, a two percent allocation it may get you in the door, but it's not going to end up driving a lot, a lot of the uh, of the returns. And you give one more example, so. There's going to be a bunch of papers that Longboard has written, and, like Eric mentioned, they used to be called Black Star. Did a name change what about three years ago? Five years ago, five years ago okay and so we'll link to these in the show notes, but one was talking about these ty- you know strategies in general, and so manage futures one of the challenges. And we've probably waited too long to discuss this for the, for the newbies on the podcast, but Managed Futures is a strategy that has very long-term trend following applied. Trend following has been around for over 100 years, if not more, but it applies long-term trend following across many, many markets and takes a long and short approach. I mean, how many markets do you guys uh, uh, track in your uh, in your funds?
1: Right now, we're looking at 145 different global futures markets.
0: And how many of those, I mean, how many of those would you consider distinct? So if you're not, if you're not counting, say, You know, gold trading in the US and London, but maybe like kind of distinct actual markets. Is it still above 100?
1: No. You know, if you do principal component analysis or correlation analysis, I think you've got somewhere between five and eight uh, distinct risk premiums around the globe. And that seems like a low number, but that's actually about the best you can do in the world. You've got metals, you've got grains, you've got equities, bonds. And then you've got dollar-denominated currencies and then regular old cross rates.
0: If I remember correctly, and, you, and I could be wrong, I remember looking at your fact sheets over the years, there's at least one market that I've seen y'all trade that no one else I've ever seen trade. you know what I'm talking about? Would that be the carbon emission credits? <laughs> yeah. Are you guys still trading that?
1: Yeah, it's a very big, deep, liquid market. Trends beautifully. (laughs) A lot of commercial hedging pressure. And for some reason, most CTAs just ignore it.
0: I love it. When when are you guys going to start trading Bitcoin?
1: We're looking at Bitcoin. Um, (laughs) When we look at markets, we want to be able to understand that that they're a, a free and fair market that actually facilitates risk transfer between speculators and commercial hedgers. And Bitcoin's not quite there yet, but it's, it's, on, it's on the shelf. We're looking at it.
0: Yeah, the, the challenge with Bitcoin, you end up with a lot of these vaults. I mean, there's another break hack the other week that just stole, I think, 70, 70 million out of it. Anyway, I, yeah, I would love to see some digital currencies take a little, get a little uh, tailwinds, but haven't seen it yet. Could be at some point. All right, let's get back to the topic. All right, so you guys have done a number of articles, and we'll touch on a few of them here, and then we'll possibly get into equities a little bit as well. And you guys, I mean, one of the most linked and liked articles, there's been two, who we cited back in the day. Um, and then we'll talk about that in a minute. But, but, but looking at this spread in front of me, I got one called Discipline Trump's IQ. And similar to your presentation to managers, and this, I think, goes back to why a lot of people struggle with managed futures, you have an example where you say, all right, I got two investments for you. Investment A Outperforms the S&P by 10 times, investment B underperforms the S&P half the time, which would you rather choose? You want to talk about that example real quick?
1: Sure. So one of the um, theories that developed out of our debates internally here at Longboard is that the best performing managers over the long term must have been doing something that other people could not do. And at first glance, uh, you'd think that they're simply more skilled They've got insider information, or better information, or they're better at discounting data than the market itself. Uh, but we like to invert things. We like to respect the fact that we don't know what we don't know. And I think that you can learn a lot by simply inverting things and working backwards in addition to working forwards. So that's how we stumbled upon the concepts of survivorship bias and post-dictive error and whatnot. So one of the things I wanted to look at was, let's look at the best performing managers over a long period of time. Berkshire Hathaway, George Soros, Bridgewater, and whatnot. The theory is that they must have done something that other people are uncomfortable doing. And one of the things that people are very uncomfortable doing is underperforming their benchmark, either frequently or for an extended period of time. And what we found was very interesting. When I looked at some of the best track records out there, they underperformed the S&P 500 or 60-40 portfolio most of the time. And Berkshire Hathaway is a a glaring uh, example. Uh, If you look at Berkshire Hathaway on a daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, or six-month basis over its entire history, an investor in Berkshire Hathaway would have underperformed the S&P 500 more than half the time. But despite that, an investor in Berkshire Hathaway would have made tremendously more money than an investor in the S&P 500.
0: You know, we, we actually talked about this a little bit recently where, you know, we do a lot of tracking through SEC 13F filings, public disclosures for hedge funds, and the Buffett clone, which is buying the top 10 Buffett holdings, has outperformed the market by about five or six percentage points per year to 2,000, despite underperforming, I think it's six of the last seven or seven of the last nine years. And this is a great example. So he would have beaten 98% of all mutual funds over that period. But despite that, you know how many advisors or investors would be able to sit through underperforming, I mean, God forbid, seven out of nine, but even two out of three years. And there was an institutional study, which I don't know if you saw that Financial Times just did recently, and it, and it asked institutions, So this isn't retail investors. This is institutions. and They manage something in the trillions. I forget what it was. There's 400 of them. They said, how many years would you give your your manager? How how many years would you tolerate the manager underperforming? And 99% said one or two years.
1: That's exactly um, (laughs) the point that I like to make. Um, When you first started doing the clone work several years ago, I was skeptical because I thought, well, it can't be that easy. You can't just watch what other people are doing, copy the top 10, and outperform. Everyone will do it, and it'll get arbed away. And then after thinking about it for a while, I realized that uh, it is sustainable, and it probably will work because it'll force you to do the things that those elite managers are doing, and there's a reason that that produces sustainable alpha over time. The fact that it's public knowledge uh, isn't going to make a difference. People will not be able to stick with it in real time because they're effectively hedging a different kind of pain. And you just talked about it. It's the relative performance envy pain, it, which is what guides most of the alpha in the world.
0: Well, there's there's a great Buffett quote that, that says, or Munger quote, where he says, I can't tell how many times I've heard Warren say it's not greed and fear necessarily that, that drives the investment world, it's envy. And that's a good example of, you know, how many people they just we just gave them an investment strategy. How long has everyone known that Buffett's been a great manager that'll outperform by five percentage points a year? How many of our listeners here are going to go implement it? Well, probably zero, but how many are going to go home and, and, you know, turn on CNBC or chat with their neighbor and say, Oh man, I got a new biotech stock for you or whatever. That's much more exciting, much more interesting than, than, uh, than a strategy that takes 10 minutes. And the, one of the biggest reasons we say that a lot of these strategies work is that sort of internal pain, that gut of having to sit through the managed futures, two thousand nine, or even a few years after of underperformance when the S and P is going straight up, and it applies to everything. It applies also to asset allocation. You know, looking at emerging markets and commodities have been down for how many ever years in a row going into this year, but eventually the internal pain uh, subsides. But yeah, I think that's a great point. But you guys also talk a little bit about offense and defense, and so thinking about. You know, investments, and you talk a lot about statistics. And there was one recently called Bump the Bell Curve. I think it was by Cole, but a few months ago. And he starts it and he says, In any competitive environment, whether it's baseball or financial markets, our first instinct is to identify the few top performers. However, Longboard's research shows that for investments to win over the long term, it's more efficient to strategically avoid the many underperformers.
1: What we found is that, again, inverting working backwards, eliminating losses and reducing volatility does more for your compounded return than identifying the big winners. It's the physics of finance or the physics of compounding. It's very counterintuitive. People do not realize the impact that avoiding drawdowns has on your overall compounded rate of return and risk-adjusted returns over time. So when you study financial markets and you have a representative sample that includes, you know, the bad data points as well as the good data points, it paints a very different picture. It's not very exciting. You know, risk management is not exciting. Most people that get into this business, they do so for the wrong reasons, the excitement, the hero complex, the winning, achievement-oriented people. And it's not until they go through several market cycles that if ever they realize that Defense is what wins championships. It's avoiding losses, avoiding catastrophe. And yes, you have to catch the winners as well. But avoiding the big losers has a, a, a more of an impact on your compounded return than catching the big winners.
0: And we even, that even applies with something like stock investing and value investing. A good example we always give is a global investor you know it's great to buy the you know to buy the value stocks to buy the cheap stuff or buy the momentum that's great those factors all work but it's also equally as important to avoid The bad side of that. So, in any broad index, so if you're going to own the world, you would have owned Japan when it went through the biggest bubble ever in the 80s. You would have owned the US in the late 90s when it went through this huge bubble. And the same thing today, or same thing with any index, you're going to end up holding the crap, which is very expensive. Just buying the cheap stuff is good because you're buying cheap stuff, but you're also avoiding the really expensive. And this goes back to a really old paper these guys did back when they were black star called the capitalism distribution. And this was a study of stock returns and the distribution of stock returns. And I'm going to try to uh, recite this from memory. Cause I've mentioned it so many times. And this study basically looked at all Russell stocks as, uh, back to, I think the eighties. Is that right? Yeah.
1: 1989,
0: 1989 and found that. And you can correct me. I'll see if I can get it right. Out of all the stocks in their history, Two-thirds of all stocks underperformed the index. True. 40% had a negative rate of return over their lifetime. True. And I think maybe 19 or 20% essentially lost all of their gains were like minus 75% or more. And so the takeaway I always had from this is, one, if you throw a dart against a wall, chances are you're going to underperform the index. So 50-50 dart against the wall, you pick a stock, chances are you're going to underperform the index because the index owns the very biggest gainers. And so you guys talk a lot about this 80-20 rule and how this applies to stocks. So maybe you want to talk a little bit about that original study as well as follow-up studies you guys have done, uh, like you know the, the D wins championships and everything after.
1: Sure. It was absolutely fascinating. I'll go back to my junior year in college when I was in a, um, a portfolio management class. One of the uh, assignments was to build a mechanical trading system, just completely rules-based. And at the time, I designed a system doing what everyone does, you know, I wanted to buy low and sell high.
0: It's an amazing class as an undergrad, especially that long ago. Did you have a particularly uh, interesting professor or, or was this trying to prove the mechanical strategies don't work?
1: Uh, I don't think they had an agenda at the time, um, but I went to Wichita State University in Kansas and had two professors uh, that were from the University of Chicago, so they had a pretty um, extensive training in modern portfolio theory and whatnot. Uh, I don't recall if the professor in this class had an agenda, but the assignment was to build a mechanical trading system and then run it for the entire semester. Cool. So I did that. I thought, well, I was looking at some charts, and I thought, wow, this is going to be so easy. You just buy down here, and you sell up there, and it's a license to print money. So I designed a system that bought 52-week lows, went long, and uh, went short 52-week highs. And I back-tested it on all the constituents of, I believe it was the Russell 1000 at the time. It might have been the Russell 3000. The back test was beautiful. I mean, to tell you, it was uh, making 40% annualized returns with 20% volatility. And I thought, wow, I'm going to have my own private island someday. This is so profitable. Something interesting happened, though, when you run it in real life. Uh, we, we set up a paper trading account, all the students did, and we had to apply our mechanical trading systems on a go-forward basis. And an interesting thing happened. Uh, in real life, it started losing money. But if you ran the back test, it said you were making money. And I ran this for a couple of months, and because I had a a database background, it really intrigued me. I wanted to go in and find out why my simulation was saying one thing, but my real life results were saying something else. Now they were highly correlated, but one was making money, one was losing money. To make a long story short, essentially what was happening is the stocks that were getting delisted for, for two different reasons. First reason, they were going bankrupt. This was in 1997 and 1998. It was over two semesters. There were stocks that were going bankrupt, and they were being expunged from the database and not showing up in the back test after they were expunged. On the other hand, there were stocks that were getting bought out at a premium. Those were also being delisted, so they were being expunged from the database. So at any given point in time, if you took a look at the database, it only included the surviving stocks. It omitted the stocks that got bought out at a premium and the stocks that were bankrupt. That explained ninety nine percent 7% of the performance difference. And it was enough to turn a what looked like a winning strategy into a losing strategy.
0: And this is hugely important. There's a I can't tell you how many times in the past 15 years I've used a software program or I'll have people email me about a software program and some very famous publicly available ones that charge in the thousands of dollars. And we'll find out that the software program either like you said, has survivor bias, so they exclude delisted stocks or it'll have you know, they'll exclude dividends or something other crazy. So it's massively important to be able to find a stock database that is free of all these. And we used one at one point, um, Norgate, which I think is Australian that isn't that expensive, but there's other ones like FactSet. So if you're, if you're a student or an individual listening to this and you want to go play around with a very expensive database, I think FactSet's like 80 grand. Go find a local business school, make friends with a professor or a student, and, and you can find probably some access there. But otherwise, you're kind of playing with a database that's just going to lead you to false conclusions. And so wait, it turned out that the actual 52-week highs is actually probably a pretty good strategy, right?
1: Well, that that was my next move. I just inverted everything. And I'll I'll use that word invert um, a lot. (laughs) Uh, I inverted everything and all of a sudden it started making money. That's what motivated me to do research into trend following. Because those are the prerequisites for a sustainable rate of return. It needs to be something that is unpopular. It's too hard for most people to do. It, it, uh, It doesn't get traction. Therefore, there won't be a lot of competition for those profit margins. And to this day, like you, I'm still flabbergasted at how even very sophisticated people will build investment methodologies without factoring in the dividends, without factoring in survivorship bias, and without realizing that a lot of these fundamental databases have restatements that are backpropagated, which results in post error. It's
0: a minefield. Our, our, our industry is a minefield. One of my most popular tweets of all time was a chart from one of y'all's research reports, and it was looking at the total lifetime returns of individual U.S. stocks. So this is thinking about one of the reasons that this 52-week high study may work you guys looked at, again, the distribution of stocks, and I'm going to name a few statistics. And it says, looking at total returns of individual stocks about 8% of all active, all active stocks outperformed the S&P index by at least 500% during their lifetime. Likewise, about 7% of all active stocks lagged the S&P 500 by at least 500%. The remaining 12,000 stocks performed above or below the same level as the S&P. But if you kind of look at this also, it look at the attribution of collective returns since the 80s. And the worst performing which is 11,513, or 80% of all stocks, collectively had a total return of zero. And the best performing, let's call it 3,000 stocks, which is only 20% of them, accounted for 100% of the gains. And so readers, I want to let that soak in for a second. The old 80-20 rule, 80% of all stocks, had you just missed the top 20%, you would have had a 0% return. Um, Eric, can you comment on that at all or have any other thoughts? I mean, this is, to me, it's such a profound study um, and maybe why it was so popular and retweeted. But kind of what led you all to this, this research report? Any other thoughts you may have on it?
1: It is fascinating. It's even more fascinating when you consider the fact that we replicated that study on Canadian stocks and UK stocks and got virtually identical results. I've also done a similar study on sports statistics, whether it's uh, pitching in baseball, hitting in baseball, rebounding in basketball. The 80-20 rule just jumps right out at you. If you get the real data and you're you're intellectually honest about it, the 80-20 rule applies to virtually all competitive systems. So it's just the way the world really works. And trying to be in harmony with that rather than fighting it uh, is our
0: goal. And the cool thing about this is so, this one, it explains why market cap indexes work. And we've said many times on this podcast that look, market cap weighting index, which just means investing in the biggest stocks and biggest by size, that's it. Price time, shares is outstanding, the only metric is actually a trend-following strategy because you end up owning more of stocks as they're going up and less of stocks as they're going down. But that ends up as an okay first, naive sort of market strategy because you're guaranteed to own the really big gainers and you're going to own less and less of the big losers. So the market cap weighting, a lot of people don't know this, the S&P is a system of owning these long-term trend-following type of strategies. By the way, you guys wrote a report on this 80-20 called Building a Better Bracket where it talks about the same thing. It talks about college teams, you know, the, the very minority of all the college teams in the NCAA tournament. Twenty-five percent of the teams made ninety-five percent of all semifinal appearances. I tried to use this to build my bracket this year. Lost again. i have always been terrible at brackets, but mainly because I picked UVA to win to win all of the uh, the brackets I was in. We're talking a little bit about equities, and most people. We're going to transition a little bit because everyone can at least grasp managed futures. Trend following works on futures markets. People have a little harder time believing that trend following works on stocks. And this was actually one of y'all's original research reports, but you've talked about it over the years and now actually just launched, I think in the last year or two, a stock-based trend following fund despite having, I know y'all had a private one for many years. Talk a little bit about trend following on stocks because I think a lot of people think that that's an area that they think it just doesn't work. Well, it's
1: such an interesting concept to me. You know, Cole and I were both equity traders during the 90s and then discovered managed futures in the year 2000 and started allocating our firm's capital out to CTAs. And we learned a lot from having managed accounts and you know transparency into what they were doing.
0: And l- let me stop you real quick. And I, I apologize for interrupting. Is my least favorite thing I hear on podcast. People, the host just interrupting. But will you comment before we get into the equities, will you comment because a lot of people don't know this, on the Managed Futures, the publicly available Managed Futures space, because you guys, I know you looked into it before you started launching funds, there's kind of a big disparity between the types of funds. And there's some funds, can you talk a little bit about that real quick, apologies for the interruption, and then and then continue on in your thought?
1: Sure. Well, so Managed Futures means different things to different people. It's a, It's a big space. There's a lot of money there. Uh, And there's different approaches. I would say that 80% of the returns from the quote-unquote managed futures category comes from long-term trend following and medium-term trend following. The rest you could attribute to uh, short-term trading, uh, relative value arbitrage, uh, spread trading and whatnot. but when you think managed futures, think trend following, because that's where most of the returns come from.
0: Yeah, but what, what I was kind of going at was a lot of the mutual funds, there's only a few, and I think it's y'all, AQR, maybe in the Texas, that actually are managing the strategy. Almost most of the managed futures mutual funds are actually fund-to-funds or outsourcing it, right?
1: That's true. So there's probably 50 managed futures mutual funds, and you know, 44, 45 of them are effectively just fund-to-funds. Which means they raise money from clients and they charge a management fee, but then they outsource that money through an offshore structure to CTAs that charge their own management fees, their own performance incentive fees, and then typically they have some swap fees involved. So the downside to that is you have three or four layers of fees that really eat into the returns. But there are a few managed futures mutual funds that are what we call direct managers, meaning they're a CTA that's simply offering the program directly through their own mutual fund.
0: And just for context, can you comment on just how large those fees add up on some of the fund-to-funds?
1: Well, there's a lot of dispersion there, but 5 to 10% I think is a realistic range. I've seen it as high as 14 Depending upon market conditions, that performance incentive fee can really start to add up after a while. But generally, the fund of funds I've looked at, you're going to have to expect five to let's say five to nine percent in total fees, but you won't be able to see most of them.
0: All right, so listeners, rewind, listen to this part again, play it three or four times. The fees on a lot of these fund of funds can add up to enormous amounts, and you got to ask yourself, how much alpha is this manager really going to generate to be able to? deserve a five to ten percentage point fee per year on this allocation it can be hugely expensive so be very very careful when you're allocating any of these fund to funds all right sorry about that little interruption we're going back to the equities part do you even remember where you were uh, fresh my memory. <laughs> okay, so we were talking about you know how a lot of people don't think that trend following can work on stocks. And so you guys had looked into, you know, you started managing, you met Cole in the late 90s, and then I'll let you run from there.
1: Cole and I were both primarily equity traders, and we learned about managed futures in the very early 2000s. And during that process, we attempted to apply the managed futures style to equities, and we were... We were confused as to why none of these CTAs had trend-following programs applied to stocks because we saw enormous trends every year, different sectors, individual stocks, and we thought, wow, why are no firms attempting to apply these robust trend-following approaches to this this opportunity set? And We asked a lot of people why they weren't doing it, and we got strange answers. Some people said that it doesn't work. Uh, some people said that the data is too difficult to deal with. You've got dividends and delistings and thousands and thousands of stocks, and it's just easier for them to keep track of 50 futures markets. But none of those answers resonated with us. So we embarked on a experiment or a research uh, project to figure out if uh, we could apply these strategies to common stocks. And that's where I learned, or that's where I, I would say mastered the art of dealing with corporate actions and dealing with survivorship bias in the context of a complete product. The results were good. We, we um, thought that it was a viable product that trend following applied to Russell 3000 stocks produced quite a bit of alpha. It had reasonable risk-adjusted returns and It was a sustainable way to offer a return stream that is not redundant with what everyone else was getting in the equity markets. So we launched that product in 2005 in a private placement form, and I run it every morning. Uh, It exists still today. It's done everything that it was designed to do. Uh, And and you mentioned earlier we launched the same product in a mutual fund format uh, about 15 months ago
0: and the kind of the basics of the strategy without giving away all the holy grail is that you're essentially buying stocks that are going up or hitting new highs, and, and, and Longboard is a shop that traditionally, when you say trend following, they focus on the very long term, and so that helps to reduce turnover a bit. But you're also exiting stocks as they decline. I assume some certain pre, you know, and, and we didn't talk about it a lot today, but the risk management and the money management sort of algorithms. You know, it, it may have been Eric that we chat about it once and said, "Look, I, it doesn't even matter as much the entry signal, but also having a lot of really wonderful exit." Uh, strategies can help a lot. So you guys are buying stocks that are going up, you're exiting them as they go down. And then you're also hedging by shorting, is this individual stocks or futures or ETFs or what?
1: On the short side, uh, we wanted to keep it simple um, and scalable. So we short index futures. We short the S&P 500, the S&P 400 mid cap and the Russell 2000 small cap. And then you're correct. We go out and we buy the individual stocks as they're breaking out to new three-year highs on a total return basis. But really, Mevin it boils down to this. The indexes own the big winners. Catching those big winners just helps you keep up with the indexes. Uh, there's not a lot of alpha on the stock selection side. It's very minimal. It's maybe 1% a year. The alpha comes from two sources. One, it's deselecting those stocks that are going to go to zero. It's the stop loss. The stop loss is much more important than the entry signal. Avoiding those catastrophic losses, and they come in every market cycle, 2002, 2008, and whenever it happens again in the future. Avoiding those losses is responsible for three quarters of, of the alpha that the program has generated over the years. The other source is in the volatility weighting of individual positions. So unlike a market cap weighted index, we're not going to have a massive allocation to Apple and GE and ExxonMobil. Instead, what we do is we weight each individual position according to its volatility. That way we have a balanced portfolio. So we're essentially rotating into sectors that are trending higher rotating out of sectors that have a lot of stocks that are doing the uh, Enron shuffle or going down quite a bit, and then volatility weighting all the positions in the portfolio and controlling the amount of total risk across the whole portfolio. Those things aggregate up into a sustainable program that has a reasonable compounded rate of return over time.
0: You guys used to have a research piece, and I can't remember what it's called, and maybe it wasn't even public, but it it showed, talking about the Enron shuffle, it showed Kind of a who's who of famous Bankruptcies and huge companies That went out of business And showed an example of How just a very simple exit algorithm Or stop loss or whatever it may be Would have prevented you from losing all of your money you would still lose some after they came off their highs but you'd prevented from losing all your money and we talk a lot about this because whether it's batista you know the brazilian guy who had 35 billion in assets and is now bankrupt or so many people that concentrate their stock positions or even bitcoin you know we say look you know having a stop loss one will prevent you from losing all of your assets. But two, it'll it'll prevent you from losing your sanity because so many people the emotions of watching a investment go all the way to zero can really be devastating, not just to the pocketbook, but also to your, your mental well-being as well. And many people, when they lose that, they have that type of environment where they lose 100% in a position or all of their portfolio, You know, it can be like the, the death of a loved one. And it's very hard to explain to people the pain of loss if they haven't been through it. All right, we're going to start winding down here in a minute. What, what else are you guys working on these days? Any research? I know you're consistently, there's always about 15 ideas in your head. And y'all, every time I talk to you, you have about five different things you're working on you got these current funds out there any other any other research ideas you guys are thinking of any other non-correlated markets or systems or things uh things y'all uh, got got going on in the skunk works over there
1: well we're always thinking about sustainable risk premiums that are scalable but like i mentioned earlier in this podcast there's only a few of them in the world and constantly looking for a new one opportunity cost of that is pretty high so we we're Spend a lot of time trying to make things more efficient. You know, we concern ourselves with things like counterparty risk. You know, it's a new world that we're in. There's uh, there's all kinds of regulatory risk and counterparty risk out there. So uh, we spend our time trying to make our infrastructure as high quality as possible. Not a lot of new products on the horizon, trying to make our existing products uh, bigger and more scalable. Uh, and just stay disciplined and do the right thing. That being said, you know, research is in our DNA, so we're always looking. We're never satisfied that we have all the answers. We really respect the fact that we don't know what we don't know. You know, we'll know more in 10 years from now than we do now, so we're constantly doing research. But I won't say that the research is leading us to new risk premiums, Not at least not recently.
0: All right, good. Well, maybe when you find a way to systematically find uh, Pokemon Go rare characters and we can, we can uh, sell them on eBay, that, that would be a good uh, strategy. All right, look, so before we finish, I forgot one thing useful, beautiful or downright magical that most people wouldn't have heard of. You got, any, you got anything for us today?
1: Well, my answer is probably going to be different than answers you've gotten from other people. I've had to undergo a a big change in my life recently as I went from, you know, you know how I used to be. I was a, a researcher doing a lot of programming, spending a lot of quality time with myself and my small research team back in the, back in the Black Star days. And now we have a firm that has uh, over 60 employees. So trying to scale our way of thinking, our um, critical thinking skills is interesting. So I would say that the most beautiful thing that I've seen recently is when you can get smart people to work together as a team and build their own decision making process, like scaling what we have at Longboard across other people. The return on investment is so high and the compounding is so great. And when you can help people to get past their own biases and learn how to be good critical thinkers and teach other people, it's very powerful when when they work together as a team and can solve problems. So I've committed time and effort into training people, uh, and it's it's actually pretty easy. I just explain to them why I have confidence in our own products. It really is that simple. I show them how I made decisions, how we inverted logic. I give them examples like um, you know, you probably heard this uh, example about the, the World War II bombers and survivorship bias, where you know the Allied forces were studying bombers that returned from campaigns over Germany, and you know they lost a lot of bombers in in, in the early stages of World War II, and they were trying to figure out ways to reinforce these aircraft such that, you know, they would have higher survival rates. So they hired all of these uh, statisticians to evaluate the data. And an interesting thing happened. They noticed very clear patterns in where these bombers would take fire and, and sustain damage. And they were very clear and obvious. And their first instinct was to reinforce those sections of the plane that took the most damage. But there was one statistician in particular, and I don't remember his name, but I'll send you the, the article if you haven't seen it. And he said, no, you're thinking about this the wrong way. You need to invert everything that you think and, and work backwards. It's, it's the information you don't have that's valuable. It's what you don't know that has the uh, hidden value. The bombers that didn't come back must have been getting hit in the other areas, so you need to invert the pattern, take the negative of it, and reinforce those sections of the planes. You're setting the survivors, and there's valuable information there, but you're misinterpreting it.
0: Does that make sense? I love that. Uh, that's a great piece of philosophy. It's kind of like you coming full circle. You're now going to be, uh, be a professor at uh, Arizona or ASU, start teaching mechanical systems design.
1: <laughs> well, I'm a professor at Longboard. In teaching people these things, and we use other examples here, like the Monty Hall problem with the three doors and people not switching doors, to demonstrate cognitive biases and, you know, the tendency that we all have, you know, our mammal brains suffer from the same delusions, but getting people to learn on their own rather than preaching to them. Walking them through examples and showing them the results and letting them feel it and experience it and then learn on their own and then go out and teach other people. And then having that cascade throughout the organization to the human resources department, the recruiting department, the trading operations department, and then you see them actually learn those lessons and then use those valuable insights in a totally different context. That's a beautiful thing to me
0: you know it's funny because I, I was I started out as a biotech student as well, and eventually similar to you kind of slowly the path moved the way towards investing in, in systems as well and one of my biggest interests interests has always been. You know, psychology, evolutionary biology, and so we'll, we'll probably have to have you on again in six months, and we'll do a, a pure psych episode, but, you know, all right, so, so one of my beautiful, useful things, and I was going to say Dyson fans, but... Uh, and I don't mean Dyson fans, like the one you see at the airport, which I actually think are kind of gross. But the ones they have these fans you can get for home, and they're the most beautiful fans. They're expensive, two, three hundred bucks. But they also have ones now that'll blow hot air, cold air, and for someone who doesn't have any AC at my house, they're a lifesaver. But I'm not going to say that. Um, I'm going to give you a book rec now because of your mention of evolutionary kind of psychology ideas, or just psych in general. It was called, is written by British professor Olivia Judson, called Doctor. Tatiana's Sex Advice to All Creation and it's not has nothing to do with really with sex but it has everything to do with animals and species around the world and how they've evolved against each other and it's such a wonderful book that um, there's so many books that cause you to take a step back and think about the world in a different way. And your inversion comment, I think, is so useful to go look at all your ideas and process and say, "All right, let's let's flip this and kind of understand what's what's uh, what's going on." This book, in a similar way, has you thinking about a lot of things in in a different way. All right. So we're winding down. We've got about a full hour already. Eric, where can more people find you if they want more information about your uh, firm research products, et cetera?
1: Well, our website's a good start. We're actually retooling the website and are going to come up with a microsite here pretty soon that's going to contain all of our historical research in an intuitive sequence. So simply Googling longboard asset management would get you to uh, one of those two sites pretty quickly.
0: All right, and uh, you guys don't really participate on on the Twitter, do you?
1: No, you know, regulatory constraints on social media are uh, a moving target, so we're reviewing that. But at right now, we don't um, do a lot on Twitter. You
0: guys got sixty employees. You can just have one of them review your your really. Stat heavy tweets. We'll get a cartoon version of you maybe online. All right. Well, everyone, look, Eric, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. It's been really wonderful to watch the evolution of a firm, you know, in particular two really good guys that have grown a business with some unique and interesting and different ideas and looking forward to y'all continuing to put out some research that continues to get appropriated by the investment banks that will give you no credit i'm not going to say who but it rhymes with Maybe morgan but anyway thanks thanks for uh tuning in today everyone look you can always find archived versions of the podcast at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast if you really like it you can always leave a review we really appreciate the feedback you can shoot us an email feedback at the com. if you have any questions or comments please send them in and we'll do some q a episodes and or uh if you have any for um eric or the folks at longboard send them in and we'll uh we'll do another episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and good investing.